The moment has arrived. I'm Tom Dickinson, and you're listening to Season 1, Episode 1 of The Moment, a podcast about Doctor Who. What a novelty. Each week on the show, you're going to hear me talk to a different Doctor Who fan. Each time, we're going to discuss a particular moment in an episode of Doctor Who suggested by the guest. Something that really spoke to them, or that they had a really strong reaction to, or something that just means a lot to them for whatever reason. So, a little background on me. I used to have a different podcast about Doctor Who. It was called The Cloister Room. All the old episodes of that show are still out there if you want to listen. I think some of them are pretty fun. My co-host on that show, anyway, was a guy named Lewis. His name is spelled L-O-U-I-S, and I only bring that up to differentiate him from a different guy with a similar name that we'll be hearing from a little bit later on in the season. Anyway, I thought it would be a good way to start off this new podcast project by sharing the conversation I had with Lewis, not only because he was my counterpart on the last Doctor Who podcast I worked on, but also because our conversation was kind of timely, for reasons that I think will become clear to you a little later. But for now, let me set the scene a little bit. It's April 2010. Matt Smith's first series has just begun, and my good friend Lewis and I are both pretty hyped up about it. There's a sense of mystery that hangs over the whole show. It's embodied within the show by the ominous crack in Amy Pond's wall, but it's also echoed in our own lives and on our own walls as a leak causes Lewis's bedroom ceiling in the college dormitory suite where we both live to form an ominous bubble of gross wetness. I'm not actually sure that's strictly relevant or related to this discussion, but it is kind of funny to me, and it's not every episode I'm going to have a college friend on, so I thought I'd milk the opportunity to add a couple personal details to the narrative. Anyway, it's the second episode of Series 5, The Beast Below, that Lewis chose to draw my attention to when he and I spoke a few weeks ago. As you probably remember if you've already seen the episode, Amy Pond has just begun to travel with her childhood imaginary friend, that mysterious adventurer in all of time and space known only as Doctor Who. He's showing her the ropes, giving her the lowdown on what life in the TARDIS is going to be like, and frankly, showing off a bit, before the two of them walk out the police box doors to investigate what the situation is in the London market of the Starship UK. The specific moment that I fixate on the most is like the very end of that one scene, me back here in where Amy hour. asks, What are you going to do? And uh, the Doctor responds what i always do stay out of trouble badly that's really the sort of point in the scene that i love the most but i do feel like the whole scene in the tardis is like a companion to the sort of first scene on the starship uk yeah i I was still at the time that this episode aired trying to get a sense of what the moffat era was going to be like you know and to some extent we all were the, the 11th hour was a very strong introduction to that. Uh, the Doctor fends off an invasion on Earth. But, like, Doctor Who is so much more than that. That's, like, a good starting point, but it's also not everything the Doctor does. And so, to, like, I was curious to see, like, okay, well, what's Moffat going to do about all this other stuff? And, and for a moment, when, when, do- when the Doctor hey, is saying, like... We are observers only. That's the one rule I've always stuck to in all my travels. I never get involved in the affairs of other people's or planets. Ooh. For a moment, you kind of, like, so you kind of wonder if maybe... Maybe that's what Stephen Moffat wants to do, is... Maybe the Doctor is going to start taking on a different role, like, on other alien planets. Like, maybe this is just going to be a thing now. And then, like, it's immediately subverted. We find that hard. We Amy don't like responds to that and then realizes that... The doctor's already gone outside and is talking to the, the kid who's crying. Doctor, 
which only goes to establish almost right off the bat that the doctor lies. Why do you think he says it though? Do you think he on some level he thinks he's telling the truth? I think I think it's aspirational. I think maybe he, on some level he's kind of sick of of always having to get involved. And so maybe this is him like making a new year's resolution here where he's he really wants to stick to it this time. He's really not going to get involved. Like a new a new face resolution. Right, right. Ex- exactly. Because he wouldn't just say it just to say it. I mean, like, or well, maybe he would. Because he, he does just like immediately subvert it. So it's like, it's almost like he's not even trying. But he, he doesn't necessarily contradict it just because it so is clarified at the end of the you scene. never interfere in the affairs of other people's or That there's an unless. Unless there's children crying. Yes. It could just be that every time the doctor does interfere is because somewhere a child cried. And maybe that's just, we, we, maybe we don't always see the child crying. It's a hidden child. <laughs> right. If you if you really look, you can spot them. <laughs> yeah. um, like I I feel like the Doctor as as written and conceived by Stephen Moffat more than in the classic series or the Russell T Davies era, where he'll like make these big sweeping statements of principle that are like just big talk, mm. and then he'll comically go and do the exact opposite. Like the one that springs to mind is in Thin Ice. Let me tell you something. I'm two thousand years old, and I have never had the time for the luxury of outrage and then later on he he punches that dude in the face yeah on your feet girl in the presence of your betters no time for outrage never had time for anything else right don't be smug smug belongs to me I, I feel like there's like a central idea that that Moffat likes to play with which is that the doctor actually has no idea what the doctor is like <laughs> Yeah, and and I kind of I do kind of like that. Like the doctor's just kind of figuring this out too. I I do want to just touch upon like the tone here, the actual delivery of the line. You know what I always do: stay out of trouble badly, because it seems so unique. I don't know if like the doctor ever like mockingly says something back at a person in quite this way, like this sort of like. What I always do, because he kind of does have that sort of inflection. What I always do, stay out of trouble. Yes, stay out of trouble. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's such a weird line read that, like, I mean, like, it's again very unique to to Matt Smith, because, like, you know, when when Amy's asking, like, "What are you gonna do?" It is kind of accusatory, like, "What are you gonna do?" That he's sending her on like this errand, and he's not really giving her a choice. She's like a little uh, angry about like well what are you gonna do and then he he just kind of like throws that back at her like well what i, what I always do and he's just like, <laughs> like i just there's something about that i just love it's such a weird little mannerism that he does here and it just i just love it so much it's just like a, a strange little delight that's thrown in there <laughs> yeah well yeah and that, that's the thing is it's like especially like in the moment when like when this is all we have to go on like i just love these like these these little moments just stand out so so strongly and they're like they're so pronounced just because we have so little else to go on it's like oh well is this gonna or is he always gonna be like using this sort of weird mocking tone whenever like people get angry at him it's like i love these little these moments that just like very quickly establish like yeah this is this is a new doctor here's all the weird stuff that he does that you couldn't picture any other doctor doing but uh, actually, now that I'm, as I said that, I think the closest another doctor would have come is actually um, in uh, the Christmas Invasion. Oh yeah, the like one of one of David Tennant's first lines is, "Who exactly are you?" Well, that's the question. I demand to know who you are. I don't know. 
That's a fairly that's in a similar vein, I think. So maybe that's just like a poster generation thing. <laughs> but I do like it, and it's just it is kind of a I just uh, something about it really strongly like really speaks to me about like just the doctor's general attitude. It almost does kind of sound like he's a parent or something there, where he's like, ah, oh, I gotta put up with this having my authority questioned, and uh, it's like, and he's and he's kind of above it. But he's also, you know, just trying to make a point. See, I wasn't thinking parent. I was more just thinking weirdo. <laughs> well, there's, yeah, there's definitely an aspect to, to being a weirdo. Uh, I mean, like, that's part of your right as a parent is to be a weirdo. That's true. And, you're, and, you're, and your kids can't do anything about it. One, one thing I like about, about the conversation that they have is that it's it seems to me like it's it's making kind of a statement about the doctor has this really big serious thing that he says about in fact rules thing one but then obviously just goes out and says what any good-natured person would do and because how can you not right in some ways it's like the opposite of of the sort of later david tennant era where like can't you understand? If I could go back and save them, then I would, but I can't. David Tennant is always, you know, crying and saying, no, I would love to, but I can't. I can't. Oh, I can no. never go back. I can't. I just can't. There are so many I reasons I can't do it. So and then uh, there's the waters of Mars where he's like, he decides that he's going to, you know, do what he feels is right to him. And then the Time Lord Victorious. And there's no one to stop you. No. The universe kind of snaps back and rebukes him for it. Yeah. I've gone too far. Whereas this kind of sets that aside and says, no, actually, that's that's a little silly. Why don't why don't we just get a little bit more into like how how would a person act in these situations? Yeah. And maybe that is maybe the doctor is is reflecting upon the run up to his regeneration. And he's like sort of thinking back on like, what could I do differently or how, how could I be different now? And, and sort of like, let's let's uh, let's maybe not concern ourselves with the rules so much. I know there are fans who like to imagine that, um, you know, like Russell T. Davies and Stephen Moffat hate each other's guts and uh, <laughs> Moffat will sit down and go like, ah, oh, that that Russell, he, he really wrote some absolute nonsense. I'm going to show him. And so he'll write something that like rebukes him. And I don't think it's like it's quite that but i do think it's like he's putting his own stamp on it and showing that he has kind of a a different take on how how to write stories with this character well that that's kind of the thing is like uh, you know this is early on in matt smith's run but it's also early on in moffitt's run and you're curious to see how moffitt's gonna handle storytelling going forward and it's it is important that he establish you know pretty solidly like how he's going to do things and yeah and i think the scene is great for that do you think that uh the doctor really does stay out of trouble badly or does he go looking for trouble <laughs> you know um or is there even a difference well because that's the thing is you know if you're if you're bad at staying out of trouble is is that by definition seeking trouble like i guess it depends on how bad you are but <laughs> i think again this is like an aspirational thing where he does really want to stay out of trouble but it's just it's just kind of a thing where he can't he can't not. I mean, like, he, like if if he's confronted with trouble, he's got to, like, get into it. Staying out of trouble would be, like, basically the opposite of his his raison d'etre. <laughs> well, if he were staying on trouble well, he probably never would have left Gallifrey to begin with. That's true. That's true. So that's, that's staying out of trouble well. But is he, yeah. Is he getting into trouble goodly? <laughs> or well? Is he getting into trouble well? I, I think there's, there's different, like takes on this from from one doctor to another where i think like the seventh doctor goes looking for trouble <sighs> yeah he actively like goes and looks for great cosmic evils that he can fight it's like it's some kind of a game and only you know the rules 
Am I so stupid? No, that's not it. Why then? I want to know. Evil, evil since the dawn of time. Whereas, like, the first doctor is passing through and yeah. doesn't even want to get involved a lot of the time. Right. We can't let them walk into a trap. The fowls are no concern of ours. We cannot jeopardize our lives and get involved in an affair which is none of our business. Of course it's our business. Um, and then a slightly kind of less extreme version of that is the second doctor who is still traveling around randomly, but often kind of relishes the opportunity to, like, get involved in stuff like that. No, Ben, we can't go yet. Well, why not? They don't want us here. Because there is something evil here, and we must stay. There are some corners of the universe which have bred the most terrible things, things which act against everything that we believe in. They must be fought. Yeah. Um, but I don't think, like, the, the doctor's not, like, he's not a cop. He doesn't, like, go around patrolling, you know, looking for Daleks to fight or... <laughs> He's not. He doesn't have like a project to uh, wipe out all of the Cybermen in the universe or anything like that. He doesn't. He doesn't really do that. But on the other hand, he's like he's always happy to see trouble when it shows up. Yeah, there is that kind of excitement he gets, that gleam in his eye when he, when someone screams, and it's like, oh, now I got to snap into action. Yeah, with with regard to the eleventh Doctor, I mean, certainly in this episode, you know, they're just they're just out there floating in space, and then all of a sudden, a spaceship passes by them. That's not his fault. He didn't choose to go find that spaceship and find something wrong with it. Unless he secretly did. Well, that's, uh, that's true. That's true. Who, who knows uh, how well the Doctor has planned this stuff out. Uh, this could all, all just be an act where he really is seeking out trouble and, you know, he's just doing it in incredibly subtle ways. Well, he does also have like a secret ulterior motive in Series 5 for traveling with Amy in the first place. Like he wants to keep an eye on the crack situation. Does is that is that actually established where he's he's trying to keep an eye on it? Well, I think I think he has this sort of moment in um ba- the Big Bang where he confesses to her that the reason he travels with her is because Emmy, your house is too big. big. She has too many rooms in her house. Empty mm. house, just you. Right. Oh, yeah. Where were your mom and dad? I was. Uh, which means that Everybody she's... Everybody who lived in that big house. Uh, she's missing something, so... She, I lost my mum and dad. Tell. What happened to them? He, at least in some... Where did they go? In some level, he's uh, he's keeping an eye on her. I don't... It's okay, it's okay, don't panic. That's it's true, yeah. That's weird, because when you when you said... When you said he was trying to keep an eye on her, my, my thought immediately leaped to series six, where he's, like, monitoring her pregnancy. That's one of the reasons why I find series six kind of frustrating because it's like, all right, this is uh, this again. Like, yeah, that's the thing is like he does kind of like uh, Moffat does kind of retread some ground there. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, like, yeah, it's certainly pretty well established. I think that the 11th Doctor tends to have ulterior motives, whether or not it's aspirational that he he tries to stay out of trouble. That line does really like i think sum up the, the doctor in a critical way although yeah i think it could be said that he's also using that sort of established pattern to as an excuse he actually wants to get into trouble and he's just yeah he's 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 acting all innocent but he knows what's up uh, um how how good are you at staying out of trouble i am very good at staying out of trouble i think i like invent new ways to stay out of trouble and i just adhere to those very strongly. I don't think I'm very good at getting into trouble at all. So it's fun- it's funny to me someone that someone who says that would have picked this as his <laughs> moment for. I mean, I said, "What's a moment that's made a big impact on you?" And you're like, "Oh, stay out of trouble badly." But look at you living your trouble-free 
life. Well, that's the thing is it's it's this is entirely uh just a- admiring it. <laughs> it's so foreign to me. It's just something that I like. This is such, like such a way of living that is so ant- antithetical to anything I would ever do. That's just like I I just think about it so much. It's like how could you do that, doctor? I guess that makes sense. <laughs> but that's that's also the thing is like, you know, fiction as a whole serves as a kind of like way to experience something that you would never do yourself. I would never be interested in reading like fiction about a computer programmer who goes to work every day and does his job and comes home and then like watches TV. Like that isn't, that's not a good, that's not good fiction. Why would I watch that? So to be transported into this situation that is so foreign to me. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure you could find trouble though. You know, I probably could. Yeah. I think I'm pretty much the same though. Like I, (laughs) I don't think I'm very rarely in trouble. And um, that's fine with me. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I, I picked this moment, but one of the f- like the the sort of climax in in this episode really like really kind of got me. Like just thinking about it in retrospect, purely uh, objectively, that scene kind of feels a little silly to me just because it came because it couldn't stand to watch your children cry of how laid on thick it all is. I don't know. What if you were really old and really kind and on the I just feel like they really really Your play up the whole dead. like no the future. space whale or whatever mm-hmm. is what couldn't you do so then? old and kind if you were that old and that kind just loves children and, and oh, last it's like okay of your kind you couldn't just stand there and watch children cry but in the moment in the moment it really gets to me I don't know why it just something about it just really gets to me I was rewatching this episode, and I was actually surprised at how much I liked it. Yeah. Well, A, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and B, like, it does have some stupid stuff in it, but that's okay. Like, I mean, why not? Yeah. Uh, weird, the Smilers and and things like that. Right. But yeah, like like you, I also found myself, like, really drawn into the big moral dilemma at the, at the climax and the way it all gets resolved, which I think is, like, in no small part, it's, like, set up by the, the moment that you chose at the beginning. Yeah. A lot of the, the Star Whale's motivations are, like, mirrored by the Doctor's motivations, and that's really strongly established in this scene where, you know, it may be a little too obvious, maybe. I don't know. But, like, it's really well done. Like, it's... And it doesn't even feel like it's that important at the actual time that she delivers that line just because you know that's this is the show if anything it's like yeah come on amy catch up like this is this is what doctor who's all about come on and so that doesn't feel all that significant at the time but it is important because like had she not just learned that earlier this episode maybe she would not have been able to connect the dots down in the 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 dungeon and it's it's strange because like uh, there's not like a whole lot to this episode it's not like it's super convoluted like you'd get some episodes in the latter half of the the matt smith era but like for that i kind of like it it's kind of nice how straightforward it is it's certainly straightforward for a stephen moffat episode it is but but it has a lot of his like hallmarks oh yeah 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 remembering and forgetting Mm -hmm. as major plot points which has kind of always been an obsession of his right yeah yeah and it has like those big sweeping statements about who the doctor is and then you know examining whether that's true or that's not true uh it's also got people standing over buttons and making decisions which is (laughs) why is that never a big red button which is a thing that he likes yeah you know you kind of get a little bit going on with like the concept of faces with uh liz ten wearing a mask and like it's perfectly fit for her face Mm -hmm. stuff like that Moffat loves a good face. He does. There's so much that does get established in this one little scene, though. Like, you do get wedged into here that shot of Liz 10, where they're on the phone with her. Mm-hmm. They do this this sort of vague talking where it's like, did he do the thing? <laughs> did he do the thing? Apparently. 
<laughs> which oh, I also man. feel like is kind of a Moffat thing. Just being ne- needlessly vague for no reason. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's really no reason for it. But then there's like there's also like a throwaway line about like where the doctor kind of deflects. Are you a parent? A question about whether or not he's a parent. Hundreds of parents walking past this Like, Amy's really, in this one scene, getting, like, a crash course on the Doctor and, like, what the Doctor mm-hmm. does. And, you know, you get a sense, obviously, from the events of the 11th hour of, like, what the Doctor is and what he's, what he's about. And But now she's, like, getting, like, a really pure example of, of what the Doctor is and does, probably like she's never really gotten before. Uh, and, that, that, and that's stuff that I think usually happens in the second episode, just because the first episode is usually so frantic because they have to get the the doctor and the companion onto a collision course together where, yeah. where they sort of depend on each other. And that has to be established like right off the bat. And there's not really time for a nice long introduction like this. And so I kind of like these episodes just because it does give you, it does afford you that opportunity to, to really lay out like, okay, this is how, this is how it goes down. This is how it usually is. Um, and I, I like that. Well, one thing I find interesting about the episode in general and, and the, this moment more particular is like so much of the like story concepts of the day of the doctor are, are kind of laid out. The notion of children being oh, of like yeah. sa- saving the children. Right. And, and children are kind of a big thing throughout Matt Smith's run. Right. I think um, Moffat really likes putting the doctor with children, especially the 11th doctor. Yeah. Um, so that's that's one thing. But also... Uh, the sort of moral argument in the day of the doctor about whether or not he's going to save Gallifrey, it all comes down to the children. Hmm. How many children on Gallifrey right now? <laughs> One day you will count them. It, it, it's it's foreshadowed here, and then at the end of the episode, you have um, you know the the sort of big decision that he has to make and. Amy ends up making it. She kind of runs up and pushes the button, which is a little different from the day of the doctor where it's, it's Clara who, um, she doesn't push a button. She convinces the doctors not to push a button. These are the people you're going to burn. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. I didn't even think about the children aspect of the day of the doctor, but that is, that is true. That's, I agree that that is really strong with the 11th doctor. That is, there is something of a chemistry there where I think he's, he's really good about like talking to children. And it's interesting how that is like right off the bat. It's, it's young Amy that he, that he first encounters and like that sort of immediate rapport that gets established or whatever. Like he's, he's talking to her, but he's not, he's not talking down to her, but like, I do love Matt Smith's interactions with kids like it's such a strong aspect of his doctor I, I i do really love it and then there's there's the notion at the end that it was the the children crying that the yeah. star whale responded to right it, it kind of ties it all in in a way that maybe this is because i just i just read the novelization of the day of the doctor which recently came out hmm. which i thought was awesome but hmm. um that that episode kind of specifically uses the children of Gallifrey to make this argument that, like, for all you can say, oh, there's there was no other choice. This is the only way to do it, and there's nothing that can be done about it. You take all that, and much like the Doctor kind of lays out here in this episode, he lays out the rules like we must never interfere, etc. It's like, yeah, but you kind of you kind of have to if you're if you're at all a decent person, right? Right. That's like a really interesting thing to see brought up here when it becomes so central to like the second to last episode of Matt Smith's run. Yeah, that's really interesting. This is so good at establishing all this stuff, like whether or not Moffat like really intended it from the get go that like this was going to be the case for Matt Smith. I, I don't know, but like. Yeah, it's so well established here that like children are going to be like central to the doctor's motivations and stuff. And it's just like, this is so, 
Yeah, you really do wonder, like, how much he planned this in advance. If you'll allow me to break back in here, hello, it's me, your host, Tom Dickinson, from the present day, more or less. And speaking of what Lewis was just saying about planning in advance, I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit and talk about planning this podcast. Back when Lewis and I chatted, we also spoke a bit about the project I was starting to work on. Um, it's, it's going to be called The Moment. Yeah, that's a great name, by the way. Yeah, I, I, I think so, too. You know, <laughs> right, cause, and, and in thinking about it, I was actually kind of surprised that nobody before now has tried to, like, use the name The Moment to reverse engineer the concept of a podcast. Like, to start with the, the name, okay, we're going to call it Doctor Who Podcast The Moment, and then we're going to work backwards to figure out what it should be about. Just so that we can have a podcast called The Moment. Like, I'm, I'm surprised no one's done that. Well, I've done it now. <laughs> <laughs> did you, did you in fact, work backwards from that title? I had the title in mind, and, like, the title came to me first, and uh, then the concept followed very quickly after. Okay. And then uh, after that, I tried to brainstorm, like, what are a couple of other concepts that might fit this title? <laughs> um, but I couldn't really think of anything that was any good at all, except for this. Yeah, I don't know how much how much else you could do with that. And the only other idea that I had, which is, I don't think it's would be very fun to listen to, is a podcast that discusses current events through the lens of Doctor Who. Huh. Uh, called The Moment, and it's about, like, the moment in time that we're experiencing right now. Oh, yeah, there you go. Um, but I don't think that would be enjoyable. Hmm. And, you know, I still don't think a podcast discussing current events through the lens of Doctor Who would be especially enjoyable. Or at the very least, it's not the podcast I personally really want to make. But a couple weeks after Lewis and I spoke, I heard something. I'm pretty sure Lewis heard it too, and there's a good chance that you probably heard it as well. I heard children crying. One of the most talked about stories in the news during the month of June 2018, at least in the United States was the policy within the U.S., enacted by the current presidential administration, of separating children from their parents or guardians at the southern border. In some cases, those families had been crossing the border illegally. In others, they had been presenting themselves to lawfully seek asylum within the United States. I'm recording this audio on July 8, 2018, at which point the policy has been indefinitely suspended, but with thousands of children left separated from their loved ones with no clear path to reunion in sight. I don't intend for this podcast to become a policy discussion. There are other better shows out there for that kind of analysis. But one particular moment in this unfolding story did stick with me. The nonprofit news organization, ProPublica, obtained and released audio of children at a detention center, crying and begging to be reunited with their parents to no avail. I considered dropping some of that audio into this podcast, but while I do think you should make a point to listen to it if you haven't, I don't think you should be ambushed with it while listening to a podcast about a family science fiction adventure drama. Instead, I'm going to drop in this audio. Hundreds of parents walking past this spot, and not one of them's asking her what's wrong, which means they already know, and it's something they don't talk about secrets. They're not helping us, so it's something they're afraid of. Shadows, whatever they're afraid of, it's nowhere to be seen. Which means it's everywhere. Please stay. When a child cries out or when someone's in pain, we can hear it. But we don't have to hear when it. When this presentation has finished, you will have a choice. We have the option to let it fade into the background. You may either protest or forget. We can just accept it as a part of the fabric of our social reality. We can decide that it's just okay to tear families apart as a strategy for deterring more families from crossing our border, or as a bargaining chip to extract further concessions from bleeding hearts across the aisle. 
but we don't have to accept it. We can choose to forget, but we can also choose to protest. I don't want the moment to become a current events show, and please don't expect all 13 episodes of this season to have a news-related gut punch at the end. I honestly don't think I'm up for that. I don't know if you are. But I think part of the reason why I'm so fascinated with the way fans respond to particular small moments in Doctor Who is that my favorite show has a way of taking us out of our world only to turn us back around to look at ourselves. Not every moment we'll talk about this season is like that. Some of them really stand out for completely different reasons. I swear, it's going to be a lot of fun. But this isn't the only one in the batch where the more I thought about the show, the more I thought about the real world around me. I hope it makes you think a bit too. And I hope once you've thought a bit, you go out and maybe it'll have some kind of impact on what you do in the world. And whatever you do, I hope that when you do it, you'll try and stay out of trouble. However well or badly is up to you. And that's going to do it for the first episode of the first season of The Moment. Major thanks to my first ever guest, Louis Midas, who you can and frankly should follow on Twitter at Belly. that's M-I-L-E-S-B-E-L-L-I. And if you already follow him and you thought his username was pronounced Miles Belly, well, now you know otherwise. For information on how you can help children separated from their families at the border, I recommend the Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services, or RAICES for short. You can help fund legal services for separated families at their website, RAICESTexas.org. That's R-I-E-C-E-S, Texas.org. You can also head to actblue.com forward slash donate forward slash kids at the border, all one word, where you can help a number of different groups that are working to protect kids at the border. If you want to support the good journalism work done by ProPublica, the organization that published the audio recording I mentioned earlier, head to donate.propublica.org. And if you're not sure what you want to do, but you know you want to help people in the United States whose voices aren't being heard, aclu.org is always a good place to start. You can find this show at themomentpod.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at themomentpod, all one word, of course. If you liked the show, please tell a friend, and if you hated it, tell a foe. Word of mouth is one of the best ways that podcasts can get ears listening to them. Another way would be to leave a review for the show wherever you review podcasts. And if you don't review podcasts, now's a good time to start. I recommend you leave one in Apple Podcasts, which used to be called iTunes, but now isn't. I'm Tom Dickinson, and I'll be back in a moment. What I always do.